Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Thursday, December 3rd, 2020. I am John Podhoritz, the editor of Commentary, inviting you as always to go to commentarymagazine.com. You get a few free reads. We ask you to subscribe. So much good stuff there. I told you yesterday about PJ O'Rourke's piece on the uh, on Shamalot, the this uh, his portrait of the of the presidency and life of JFK. Uh, we have a really wonderful piece by Jim Meggs called "We're Living in a New Space Age" that takes up uh, the successful SpaceX launches. Um, a great piece by Terry Teachout on Cole Porter, uh, Yuval Levin on the hyper-rhetorical presidency, and uh, Mayor Soloveitchik on what the lessons were from the Nuremberg trials, uh, which were you know, which sort of began 75 years ago this month. Um, and that uh, I've, I've told you guys also about our various articles here uh, on... Uh, on the podcast, uh, with me, the authors of those articles, senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. Associate editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. And executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. So, Noah Rothman, uh, there is this, I think we are 33 days from the runoff special election, the runoff elections in Georgia, the two Senate seats, and uh, there is much uh, weeping and wailing and the gnashing of the teeth uh, on the Republican side about whether or not the continuing efforts by the president and his lackeys to make some kind of a last stand on an election that he lost uh, continues. Yes, and <clears throat> there's a fair bit of consternation. I think it's more beltway um, myopia than anything, but there's a fair amount of consternation among uh, national Republican figures about the ongoing civil war that has erupted in Georgia and the extent to which that could have down ballot implications. We got this, you know, runoff coming where they are, yeah, runoff election, two runoff elections in January, which will determine control of the Senate and. The people who are the most outspoken Trump allies in this nonsensical fight over whether or not the election was stolen. I mean, it's over. Most of these states have certified these results anyway. So this is just fighting a lost war. But anyway, they're committed to it. People like Sidney Powell and Lynn Wood, who are outright saying, don't vote for these people. Don't vote for Republicans. They sabotaged you. They, they, they sabotaged the election. They've stabbed you in the back. But then you have, you know, more establishmentarian Republicans, of course, but even people like Don Jr. who are saying, no, no, no. You got to vote for these Republicans or else, you know, my father's legacy is on the, the ballot here and that could be the end of everything. And so they're taking a much more cautious approach to it. The president, however, seems to be straddling the fence on the issue. I, he certainly seems more inclined to he's, he's going to head down there and he's, he's going to endorse these candidates. But there's a fair bit of um, trepidation about what he might say in while he's saying, you know, a perfunctory endorsement, but also, you know, this whole state was was sabotaged and my election was stolen by all these people who who I don't support. The governor, Brian Kemp, doesn't like Brian Kemp. He never has liked Brian Kemp, especially. Uh, I think the feeling is pretty much mutual. The Secretary of State, who seems to be a pretty irascible fellow and doesn't have many allies, but is also um, not high on the list of people that Donald Trump uh, loves these days. So he could go to war with the, the GOP and 
while I do, contrary to people like Sean Trendy, who wrote a very interesting analysis around this thing, I do think that the race for control of the Senate being the overarching issue here, the state will is more likely to revert to uh, factory settings, as it were, a more Republican-leaning state, and Republicans turn out in generally better numbers during runoff elections, off-year elections anyway. So I do think Republicans have an advantage in this state, but it's certainly one you can't count on. And the consternation here is growing, and the implications are really significant. Uh, the president's legacy is on the ballot, and if he's inclined to resurrect his political career in 2024, you know, he's going to leave office now. If, with, if these Senate seats are won for Republicans, he leaves office now with a plausible claim to say, you know, the GOP needs me as much as, uh, you know, you need me and everybody needs me. And I left you in a better position. If not, I mean, he would still be able to say that Republicans did very well in 2020 with him on the ballot. But those that message would be overshadowed by three years of unified Democratic control in Washington and all okay, the associated I, fallout. OK, uh, this kind of uh, thinking uh, that uh, Donald Trump sort of thinks three steps ahead and what would be look good in 2024. I think well, he is certainly cool. doesn't think that way, though. Right. But what I'm saying is that uh, uh, Trump's legacy is Trump. It's not going to be how, what condition he left his party in or whether or not he played a helpful role in ensuring that that the uh, Senate stayed in Republican hands or anything like that. You could actually make the case if you really wanted to go this way that because Trump Trump manages uh, to con- has managed to control the Republican Party and not only maybe the Republican electorate likes him or appreciates him, or a lot of them do, but that um, other Republican officials are afraid of him and 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 frightened of him. And if in fact Democrats win the two Georgia Senate races because he has withdrawn his imprimatur of support on the grounds that Georgia's Republican Party in the hands of Brian Kemp. Uh, is uh, is so irredeemably corrupt that he, you know, that uh, whatever, then um, he's making the case in some weird way, don't cross me, don't get in my way, don't say anything I don't ever want you to say, and say everything I want you to say, or I will put a dagger in your back and in your front and anywhere I feel like doing it. And that, you know, that fear, that rule by fear has been very, effective for him we will know more about this on saturday night when he has this rally and um and you know the real question is the obvious thing for him to do is to say everybody's got to go out and vote for these guys they got to go out and vote for these guys but we don't know what we don't know is how studied or real or unreal or not real his emotional attachment is to the they stole the election from me line. We don't right. know how much of this is performative and how much of this is really, you know, the, his id coming out and, 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 and dominating him. And we'll have a better sense of that on, on I, Saturday. I will say that I don't think it's a hundred percent fair to say he only thinks 15 minutes ahead and doesn't think about his legacy at all. Even in this moment, in part because the white house has, has word to life after, you know, three weeks of being just moribund and, and lack, you know, lackadaisical. They have sprung to life again since October for the first time since October in pursuit of a, of a COVID relief deal. Nuchin that, is out there back on the Hill. But that's not the white house. You're Nuchin talking about the administration. Nuchin is, Nuchin is, the, is, the, yeah, is not the white. Yeah, but he is not the white house. The white house is inert. There's weird stuff going on all over the place. 
but not in the White House, which is, you know, Trump's personal office. You have this bizarre stuff going on at the Pentagon where people are being fired with six weeks to go, like the ISIS, like the coordinator of the fight against ISIS, so as to empower Ezra Cohen Watnick, who has been, who uh, left the employ of the National Security Council in 2017, 2018, has been re-empowered as part of this new team at the Pentagon and who is like seizing control of stuff for six weeks, for six right. weeks. Well, it's crazy. Not, uh, if, if Nuchen has gone rogue here in pursuit of this it's deal, not rogue. It's, not, it's not in reports. The, the report suggests that Donald Trump wants it too. Well, if he wanted it, he would stand up and say, I, I'm signing any bill that is sent to me. He does, he wants it. He doesn't want it. He doesn't give a crap. All he's focusing on is himself and this stuff. He doesn't have a legacy. He doesn't think about legacy. I don't agree. I, he does think five minutes ahead. I see no indication that he is thinking about his legacy whatsoever. His legacy is he is the guy who's going to leave office saying the election was stolen from me. That's his legacy. That's the legacy he wants. He actually wants that legacy. Well, his his governing, uh, his most effective, well, not effective, that's the wrong word, but he's most energized as a, as, as a leader when he has something he's fighting against. So I think a lot of the inertia in those immediate weeks after the election was him trying to figure out how is he going to fight? How is this fight going to happen? And all the, the bickering amongst the Rudy Giuliani's and others advising him about how to fight this. And I do think he'll he'll go down to Georgia and he's going to try to do both, right? He's going to say, these are great candidates. You've got to elect them. We've got to control the Senate. On the other hand, here's all the horrible ways I've been you know, mistreated. Here's all the ways this is corrupt. Um, he's the classic sort of bomb-throwing backbencher. And he does very poorly when there's either a moderating force on the other side who's sort of relentlessly and steadily attacking him, which was Joe Biden in the election, or when he's powerless. So I think, and it, you know, Newt Gingrich had the same problem. He was this extremely effective radical backbencher. And when it came time to govern, he kind of bungled it at the beginning, right? He eventually found his stride. But the backbencher, the person who's always needing an enemy to, to fight against, has trouble when they have all the power. And I think he's in this weird situation where he knows that to retain, I mean, I do think he cares a little bit about legacy. I'm, I'm, but his, his sense of what his legacy is shifts from week to week is the impression I get. Um, yeah, I don't think I it's don't, a binary condition. I don't think he can, he can say also, I want my legacy to be this stolen election thing. And it's just, which is very much in, in line with what he ran on in 2016. You've been robbed. I've been robbed. We've all been robbed. We're going to get our revenge. And also I have this record to run on. And Republicans owe me because I delivered for them. Uh, I don't think those two I, things are are uh, contrary. I don't. I don't think this is um, at all about his legacy because I don't think he thinks. I think he thinks he's only halfway done with his years as president. Uh, he's coming back. There's, to, to have to to think about his legacy would mean you know to be thinking about what 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 happens after he's gone. He in no way thinks he's this is it for him. Well, and if you're cynical, three or four, three years of Biden with the with the Democrats controlling both houses of Congress is actually a good scenario for him if he wants to come back, right? Because they'll right. make a hatch of things he can have something to argue against. In, in theory, in theory, I mean, I, I do think that we find ourselves. I, I wanted to cite something today, Eric Eric Erickson, who is a uh, you know a, a former Tea Party partier radio talk show host in uh, Georgia, lives in Georgia, was an electoral lawyer and was an elections lawyer in Georgia for years, um, has an absolutely fantastic, he has a daily newsletter and he has an absolutely fantastic uh, trolley thing he wrote today 
called, I'm sorry, I was wrong. The deep state really is trying to steal the election. Okay. So here's what he writes. He says in 2014, Barack Obama was on the verge of a remarkable achievement to be the first president in a very long time to have a supermajority of his party in the United States Senate. Down in Georgia, Michelle Nunn, daughter of former Senator Sam Nunn, stepped up to run as the Democrats' nominee. An Obama donor swung into action to help her against David Perdue, the Republican nominee. Polling showed Nunn ahead of Perdue at one point, and Democrats got really excited. The Obama donor gave Nunn money and support to get her across the finish line and get the Democrats their supermajority, but David Perdue beat her. Yesterday, down in Georgia, that Obama donor and reliable Democratic voter swung into action again to help the Democrats take back the Senate and try to stop David Perdue a second time. Standing on stage at the Stop the Steal rally, Obama and Michelle Nunn donor, attorney Lynn Wood, urged Georgia Republican voters to stay home and refrain from supporting the GOP in the special election runoffs that will decide control of the U.S. Senate. Wood helped fund John Edwards' presidential campaign. He backed Barack Obama. Uh, He funded various other Democratic Senate campaigns to help Harry Reid and Chuck Schumer. Uh, He has given money to progressive Democrats in Georgia in both gubernatorial races and state legislative races. And now he has taken the lead in suppressing the Republican vote in Georgia. That's pretty funny. Now, you know... So what if the ultimate secret of the Kraken is that it's a way of keeping of getting the Democrats control of the Senate? The releasing of the Kraken is the you can't vote Republican in this election uh, in order to be loyal to Donald Trump. So make sure that the Senate stays in Democratic hands. Now, I don't tend to believe that people do things in that way, but um they do. The very people who believe in the deep state and the Kraken and all of that, they believe people plot like this all the time. So what do you think? I Lynn, mean, if people Lynn really Wood, cared about who voted agent. for Democrats and who supported Democrats, that would have been an effective line against Donald Trump in 2016. No, they but don't it's, care. It's not a line. It's not a line. He is actually making an interesting argument that Breitbart is making the same argument. Breitbart has the same piece up here, too, uh-huh. about Lynn Wood. Um, this is the monster they created. I know. Sorry. This is the, this is exactly what you wanted, guys. You wanted the guy. It didn't matter what their ideological proclivities were. They fight. Right. Well, They're not, fighting. Right. This is what you got. No, but this is anyway. I, I think that the idea that Brian Kemp... And you know can stand up and say, "I don't know what you're listening to Lynn Wood for." He's a he's a he he's a backer of Democrats and a con- campaign contributor to Democrats. And uh, you know you better not listen to him and what he's saying. That basically Purdue and Kelly Leffler, the two Republican candidates, have been gulled <laughs> into participating in a voter suppression effort against their own votes against their own voters. I mean that is actually true. I mean, there's no way that this is good for them, right? <clears throat> no, you may say that the regression to the mean is to is for this to become a, <clears throat> you know, the two Republicans are going to win. But I mean, you know, it's really not that simple. Um, the voters who turned out to vote against Donald Trump uh dislike Trumpianism, one can assume, and not just Trump. And if what they are seeing is 
the revival of Trumpianism in these insane charges against Kemp and Raffensperger and all of that, which must be dominating the news in Georgia the way it dominates political news here, except, you know, by a multiple of five or six. Doesn't that say to them, I don't like the, I mean, I don't want to empower these guys. Like, I don't like that they're behaving this way. I kind of like Brian Kemp. Maybe I like Brian Kemp. What do I, I voted for Brian Kemp. And now they're saying that Brian Kemp is a democratic stooge. I can't vote for these guys. Not that they are going to turn around and vote for Warnock and Ossoff. You just need 50,000 people to stay home. You don't need those 50, it's just, you need those 50,000 people not to vote. That's what voting. So if both of them lose, it will, it will be this narrative that cost them. And this narrative is attributable to Donald Trump. I don't care who's saying it. I don't care if it's Lynn Wood, the Democratic donor who doesn't have the confidence of the president, blah, blah, blah. This is his narrative that he's promoting. How does that not stick for four years? Because nothing sticks for four years. Nothing sticks. Nothing sticks in American politics. Nothing sticks. Haven't you noticed? Haven't you noticed? Barack Obama. No, I, think that's an I don't know. Very, very little sticks. Tell me what tell me what sticks. Tell me what you remember. From, you know, I don't know. I mean, people are going to say, you can't vote for Donald Trump. He handed the Senate to the, he handed the Senate to, to the Democrats. And then he'll say, I didn't hand the Senate to the Democrats. People like you handed the presidency to Joe Biden by, uh, by, by not fighting against the rigging of this election. And if that storyline is working for, you know, the Republican base electorate, that's going to be a more effective thing than attacking Trump right now. Noah, you were, we were talking before, you were talking about this uh, Politico piece about 2024 and how it's weird that p- potential candidates for 2024 like Senators Josh Hawley and Marco Rubio are standing around saying really nice things about Trump rather than saying we need to move on and I'm really the f- people like me are the future. Only Josh Hawley, in fact. Uh, The Republicans cheer on a Trump 2024 run is the headline in Politico. And if you read the piece, there's a lot of usual suspects. Um, You know, Matt Gaetz and maybe even Rick Scott and Lindsey Graham who are like, yeah, that'd be that'd be okay." And Josh Hawley is very enthusiastic. He seems inclined to he's running for president in 2024 and he seems inclined to reproduce Ted Cruz's 2016 strategy, which was very clever. So clever, in fact, that it missed the forest for the trees and lost. Um, so reproducing that strategy seems very on brand for Mr. Hawley, who uh, does think a few steps ahead of the, the pitfall that's directly in front of him. But what was really interesting about that piece is how many Republicans, including Marco Rubio, who are noncommittal as they should be at this point in the political calendar, but, I don't think it matched the sentiments that I read in the piece didn't match the headline. The headline is a wish fathering the thought, which is the Republican Party is the Trump Party and the Trump Party is the Republican Party. And it's always going to be this way. And that's good for us because all these people who write these pieces are Democrats. Um, And that's pretty much the sentiment that I get. But no, I don't think the field is particularly settled. I don't think the sentiments are particularly settled. And if it costs them the Senate and if Donald Trump costs them the Senate. Yeah. Yes, there's going to be a very powerful argument against his conspiratorial uh, narcissism that was the result. That that did it. There were very powerful arguments against Donald Trump in 2016, and they did not gain purchase, or they did not gain they sufficient... Purchase, they, they, they did they not gain, gain purchase among sufficient. the 30% who was with him all the way into January. Yeah, well, I mean, that's, that's what you need to have a base to win in a contested primary. 
And I think the point here is Rubio was not, it's not, Rubio was not noncommittal. Rubio said, if Trump runs in 2024, I think he's going to win, which isn't to say I will endorse him or I love him, but it was to say that if he runs, I think he's going to win, which was Rubio signaling that he maybe isn't going to run. And Hawley is 11 years old. I mean, he's, you know, Hawley has a long time to decide when he wants to run for president. He is, I think he's 41, something like that. I mean, he's really, really young and he doesn't have to go now. And, uh, and you know, if what he wants to do is establish bona fides with this wing of the party and build a slow and steady record in some effort as he watches to see what's happening with Trumpianism and his own efforts against big tech and various other things, he's got time. Uh, I don't really think that he is presidential timber, but, you know, he's got time. And he is, in fact, a very, very intelligent person. Uh, The populism wears kind of weird on him. He is like a Stanford PhD in Harvard Law School. You know, I mean, he's no, he's, you know, he's... No, yesterday he's out there railing against the National Defense Authorization Act in which the, quote, social engineering, unquote, provision was inserted by Elizabeth Warren, which he opposes. That social engineering provision was renaming military bases. Yeah. That's not social engineering. That relies on you being an idiot. No. That assumes you don't understand what the words mean. And it's extremely unhelpful to those of us who are actually opposed, who oppose social engineering and things like the tax code to conflate terms like that. It is playing to the cheap seats and he knows better. Okay. Look, I'm not, I'm right now, I'm not condemn. I'm not, I'm analyzing. I'm not speaking value. I'm not speaking in the value laden, whether I like, or I don't like what he, what he says or what he stands for as it happens. I think that big tech needs to be looked at. I think that the way that he is talking about big tech is counterproductive and wrong and violative of the first amendment. So I don't really like it at all. Um, So that's an interesting, I'm just saying that Hawley is not necessarily running. The fact that we are talking about who's going to run in 2024 itself is a mark of how demented our politics is. I mean, we don't even have this new guy's whole team up yet. He's going to be president. Stuff is going to happen between now and 2024. The vaccine's going to come in. There'll be some huge economic growth spurt after after COVID is over. There could be a real era of good feelings. We talked about this yesterday. The notion that the politi- that the field, uh, you know, that American politics is static and that we are going to be we're going to have this 80 year old guy in the White House and this 76 year old guy, 77 year old guy ranting and raving and having rallies and being his ranting and raving self, and that politics is not going to move on from that. We just don't know. But looking at the way American Republican politicians have lived and handled the Trump era, it is very hard for me to see how they move on from him delicately and gently, which is what they want. They want to be nice and they want to say nice things so people won't be mad at them and he won't be mad at them and all of that. And he is not going to let go. He is not going to lift his boot from their throat because that's who he is. He is the guy with the boot on your throat. And when you, when you, when you sass him, he keeps the boot on your throat and look at what's going on in Georgia. I mean, you know, uh, that guy Sterling, the the elections official who gave the speech yesterday, saying, "What's wrong with you people?" Brian Raffensperger is walking around with a bulletproof vest because he is getting death threats, and they are credible, right? Ordinarily, I would say, 
I got death threats in 2015, you know, off Twitter because you know, by the by the alt right people and all of that. And my presumption was that they were just, you know, guys in their basement. It was all crap, and you know, was not anything to be taken seriously. But I don't think you can look at what happened in Michigan at the Michigan State House. I don't think you can look at the Proud Boys. I don't think you can look at this stuff that is going on and the anti anti Antifa stuff and say Brian Raffensperger is foolish for wearing a bulletproof vest. These are the animal forces that are being released by what's been going on here. And, you know, if you're a Republican politician, do you want to, you're, that you are now fearful not of the Bernie Sanders supporter who's shooting up the congressional softball game, but you're fearful of somebody who is nominally in your general ideological camp that he is going to come after you because you were insufficiently respectful of the psychotic conspiracy theory being promulgated by a defeated president. I mean, that is not healthy, right? It's obviously not healthy. And it also speaks to how it's going to be very hard to move on from Trump. Now I've been monologuing. So Abe, say something. Um, <laughs> well, no, I think, I think it, it is going to be very hard to, uh, 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 move on from Trump because there's no also in addition to the fact that he won't um, let the party move on um, there is no ready framework um, among Republicans to switch over to um, there is no sort of set of um, alternative um, ideas to go to the, the, the worst thing you could say um, whether or not it, it has um, sort of actual, ideological merit or not but in terms of popularity the worst thing you can say on the right is to go back to a is to, is to talk about going back to a pre-trump um type of conservatism zombie um, reaganism right right so 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 what what are they moving on to I'm, I'm speaking tactically i'm not talking about what i like and what yeah. you know but so what what is it that they can move on to well that's what the next four years will tell us I mean, you know, the, the next four years, in an odd way, would think about it this way. Trump uh, rides down the escalator in 2015. Say that the Republicans hadn't won the Senate in 2014. Or say they hadn't won the House in 2010. Or that there had been a real comeback by the Democrats in 2012 or 2014, you know, to sort of like level out or even out the House or so, whatever, however you want to slice it. Trump needed them to have some power so that he could say, look, they had the House or they have the Senate, whatever, and, they, and they're not doing anything. They suck just as much as Obama sucks. They're all part of the same Washington swamp, right? So... That was situational. There was no way of game. There was no way to game that. There was no way to game that that winning the Senate in 2014 would actually be a help to the insurgent candidate uh, who wanted to win in 2016. As everybody obediently lined up to play their roles in 2016, you had the brash, young, smart Tea Partiers. You know the future of the party. What an incredible field! Rubio and Cruz and. This one and that one, and, Je- and then you have Jeb Bush from the past, and you have that, and all this. Whoa, what an amazing field! It was Scott Walker, and so incredible. And then you know, out of no, you know, these good, fantastic future. And then 
this happens, right? So um, that's the one thing I will say is that while if you play, if you think about this only in terms of where things are and what Trump wants, Trump wants to have his foot on the boot of every Republican's throat. And maybe Biden will make that impossible for him to do that because they're going to have to respond to Biden in real time. Right. Right. Okay. Let me, uh, let's take a break and let me talk to you guys about our first sponsor today, Keeps. You know, uh, I'm, 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 I'm nearing my seventh decade. So uh, hair is kind of a, a, a lost subject for me, but I'm looking at Noah got a beautiful head of hair. I'm looking at Abe, who's still got a lot of hair. And, he, you know, I look at you and I say, if if your identity is wrapped up in your hair, I don't blame you. My identity is kind of wrapped up in the fact that I lost my hair. So from how it feels after getting a fresh cut to the way it's perfectly styled before going out, that's why when people get into their 20s and 30s and start noticing the first signs of hair loss, it can feel like panic time because... Let's face it, no guy is ever ready to go bald, but thankfully now there's Keeps, the simple and easy way to keep your hair. You used to have to go to a doctor's office for your hair loss prescription. Now, thanks to Keeps, you can visit a doctor online and get hair loss medication delivered right to your home. They make it easy and deliver your medication every three months so you can say goodbye to pharmacy checkout lines and awkward doctor visits. Keeps offers generic versions of the only two FDA-approved hair loss products out there. You may have tried them before, but never at this price, almost certainly. Prevention is key. Keeps treatments typically take between four to six months to see results, so it's important to act fast. The sooner you start using Keeps, the more hair you'll save. Find out why Keeps has more five-star reviews than any of its competitors, and more than 100,000 men trust Keeps for their hair loss prevention medication. Keeps treatments start at just $10 a month. Plus, for a limited time, you can get your first month free. So go to keeps.com slash commentary to receive your first month of treatment for free. That's K-E-E-P-S dot com slash commentary. K-E-E-P-S dot com slash commentary. Um, Christine. One of your favorite new politicians, and by favorite I mean least favorite, <laughs> is a freshman incoming freshman Congresswoman Cory Bush from St. Louis. Yes, uh, and she has gotten herself into an interesting fight. What's the fight? Well, the other day, former President Barack Obama went on a show and uh, started talking about, you know, in the context of the most recent election, how phrases like defund the police, although they sound interesting, and I think he used the word snappy, it's a snappy phrase, they actually turn off a lot of voters because they are expressing a, a policy wish that most people don't agree with. He's absolutely correct about that. If you actually look at people's responses to questions about defunding the police, um, so he's right. Uh, Cory Bush and the rest of the squad immediately uh, attacked him for saying this. Cory Bush uh, sent out a tweet that that said, you know, with all due respect, let's talk about losing people, Mr. President. We lost Michael Brown. We lost Breonna Taylor. It's not a slogan. It's a mandate for keeping our people alive. Defund the police. Um, Elon Omar jumped on and said, this is not a slogan. It's a policy demand. And um, 
Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez had a whole, you know, tweet storm about it. Um, the, one of the more interesting responses actually was Ayanna Presley, another member of the squad who said, uh, you know, the murders of generations of unarmed black folks by police have been horrific. Lives are at stake daily. I'm out of patience with critiques of the language of activists. Whatever a grieving family says is their truth. Um, and, and I think that's in a really important, their truth is becoming this mantra by which activist types, including many, uh, elected officials who, who are, who see themselves as activists, uh, justify ignoring facts about police brutality, about police violence at the very same time that they claim everybody else is ignoring those facts. So, uh, th- there is no such thing as their truth. Everyone is tied to their feelings, their emotions, their grief. Truth is truth. And I, I find the use of that phrase in, uh, replicated over and over again among the same group of people talking about police violence really disturbing because they are trying in real time to shift a conversation and shift the way the public perceives these issues. But the, the, but the broader and more interesting thing is how Barack Obama, who, who was one of the more liberal Democrats we've ever elected to the presidency, is now too conservative and is now no longer acceptable to the to a the wing of the Democratic Party that is among the most popular, certainly among the media elite, um, and that is going to really cause a lot of headaches for Joe Biden if he tries to do anything with regard to criminal justice reform. So defund the police is one of those infinitely malleable phrases that can mean abolish the police. Some, that's what some people mean by it. Some mean, oh, let's just shift funding around to mental health services. But it can mean whatever the activist at that moment wants it to mean. But if you look at what the squad's reaction to Obama was, you see its actual radical intent, which is they don't want law enforcement. <laughs> they want something else. We don't know what it is. Uh, it, it always sounds vaguely kinder and gentler. Um, and none of it, none of it at all can address what has been a horrifying spike in violent crime in this country over the last you know, four to five months. None of it addresses the needs of the most vulnerable communities and what they say they want, which is better trained police and more of them. So it's just it's a fascinating it's fascinating to watch this break out in real time. Um, with Obama. So as evidence that uh, Obama is right um in Minneapolis. What? Abe, did you just say Obama is right? Those words have never come out of Abe's mouth before. I think Please. that's true. That's I how amazing things yeah, are. Well, well, there you go. Uh, as evidence that Obama is right, um, in Minneapolis, where the defund the, the, the police, uh, you know, sort of took off, um, after making headlines and all sorts of pronouncements in the, the uh, but from the Minneapolis City Council, um, who talked about and and um, I think all agreed upon at first that they wanted to defund the police, sort of um, without qualification. This was this was this was back when defund the police meant defund the police before everyone else jumped in and said no, it doesn't really mean that. It means shifting around, you know, uh, money and, and a different type of law, law enforcement. Anyway, after all that, the Minneapolis City Council quietly sort of walked it all back and 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 made none of it happen. Um, right. Because the people who would be most affected, and I'm, and I'm talking about African-Americans here, spoke out and were like, this is crazy. We need the police. There's no, what do, what do you mean def- defund the police? Um, so, so those are the people you would, you're, you're actually losing. In addition to, you know, uh, sort of across the aisles, sympathetic conservatives who think that, that there should be um, some sort of police reform, um, the actual people who need the police are scared to death 
of defund the police. And just well, one, yeah. one more note on Cori Bush, because, you know, I, I'm, I'm on, a, on a roll here against her, but <laughs> ranting. The fact that she chose the name Michael Brown to throw back in the face of Barack Obama was absolutely intentional. So Michael Brown was what sparked the Ferguson, Missouri riot. She is a congresswoman from Missouri. Um, he it was Obama's Justice Department that did a, a lengthy investigation into the circumstances of that use of, of uh, uh, force by the police officer and found it justified. Michael Brown was trying to wrestle a policeman's gun from the police officer at the time of his death after having robbed a convenience store. So the the fact that she and, and it was an Obama Justice Department that found that it was it was justified. And this is where the hands up, don't shoot the mythology um, that the defund and abolish the police types have began in some ways in Ferguson. And she was invoking that yet again to talk about their grief, our truth. It's not the truth. It's a lie. It's a lie. And it's been repeated over and over again by people like Senator Elizabeth Warren and others. It's just not true. So I think the fact that she's throwing that back in the face of, of the president who did a thorough investigation with his Justice Department is it is on purpose. You know, part of this is a very uh, this is very helpful, clarifying uh, in the course of this year, uh, because. Uh, Obama, who's of course promoting his his endless memoir, um, represents the. I know how to talk to the you know, American folks, and I'm going to talk to the American folks and say, "Look, that was snappy, but you know, just go, go, goes a little too far. You know, like you know, that's not what anybody really wants. It's not really going to work. It's not going. You know, like come on." You know. Cory Bush says, no, we mean it. We mean it. And we are going to fight for this. We are not giving up on it. You may have elected Joe Biden, Joe Biden, Schmo Biden. We, we are, a, we are a, a, a committed, ideologically committed to this cause, to this idea, this idea that social disorder and decay and disruption and racism are being promulgated by authorities who wear uniforms. And we are going to put a stop to it. And what this means is they mean it. Now, the interesting question, and we're getting back to my favorite Plato's Cave thing <laughs> that we keep talking about, is we know from the 2019 primary season in the Democratic Party, uh, and this was, remember, this is before uh, George Floyd and everything that went on this year, that this notion that uh, you know police brutality, systemic racism, and all of that are such a huge problem, and courting the squad, courting the left wing, the very online left wing of the Democratic Party, became the focal point of the 2019 Democratic primary to the extent that the one guy who didn't want to do it waltzed into the nomination. <laughs> you no. Know? waltzed into the nomination. He was the one guy who didn't want to do it. But the question is, where is the Democratic Party going to be with this? Because the media are with the squad. A, they're women. B, they're women of color. So not only are they with them because they like them and they want to promote them and all of that, but they're, they also have no, um, they have no capacity to oppose them, let's say, without being accused of making somebody feel unsafe somewhere. Uh, and so 
are, are we going to go into 2021 with Joe Biden with 81 million votes having said, I don't want to defund the police, and Barack Obama having won two elections saying, this is a bad slogan, let's drop it, against these 10 or 11 members of Congress, are the 10 or 11 members of Congress going to have serious sway over the way in which that their party views and handles these matters are they going to be coddled are they going to be petted are they going to be are they going to be sort of paid obeisance to or are they or is there going to be a, system, a systematic effort to squash them and silence them and say they do not represent this party's views because we have incontrovertible evidence that this was damaging to the Democratic Party's down ballot prospects and 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 what happened to the Democratic Party in November. Everybody who lost says it played a role. Everybody who won using it as a tool, using they wanted to fund the police as a tool, says that it was key to winning. All over the country, in Staten Island, in Miami, in Texas, in Minnesota, in various other places, geographically consistent everywhere. And so it's clarifying. It's going to be interesting to see whether Joe Biden pets them on the head, condescends to them, says it's so great how passionate you are. I love your passion. Or whether he says, this is bad. This is bad for my party. This is bad for the country. You know, people need to feel safe in their homes and they need to feel safe on the streets and they need to feel, and police officers need to be respected for the work that they do. I don't know. And here's the thing. Um, it's not something that will subside easily because, sadly, there's going to be future incidents, right? There's While Biden is in the White House, there are going to be police shootings caught on camera that are going to that are going to continually feed this debate and 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 bring this up. And Biden's going to have to address them. He's going to have to address the the defund the police claims. And it's it, it is there's no way for this to calmly subside well and the other the other way of answering your question john is to say um it it depends on why you think these folks who are in the squad are in congress because in a weird way i see them as having similar motivations as donald trump they are they are ideologues and they care passionately about their ideology they and they care about power but they don't care about politics as we traditionally think of politics and how it's done, which is about compromise and dealing and wheeling and building coalitions. They're, they're really not that interested in that. And that's why this shift for, um, and, and it happens on the right too, but on the left recently, we've really seen this effort promoted by groups like Justice Democrats to elect activists. They want an activist in a governance role. And those are two very distinct skill sets. So I actually will be curious to see if they're effective at all legislating any of these ideological goals, because the activist mindset doesn't like compromise. Cori Bush is a perfect example of this. Um, So we'll see. Um, I hope that they, I hope they do get the condescending pat on the head from Joe Biden, but I don't know. I think some of it will depend on how, will Kamala Harris play a role? I mean, is he going to just turn that portfolio over to her? I mean, I'll be curious to see. Look, the war, the the interesting political war that is going on right now outside of, you know, uh, uh, Donald Trump uh, doing whatever he's doing is Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez versus Joe Manchin, the most liberal member of the House versus the most conservative member of the Democratic caucus in the Senate. 
And Joe Manchin is way more important than, uh, you know, uh, than AOC. Way more important because, you know, uh, with a you know fifty one forty nine Senate, if it, either way, you know, effectively fifty one fifty or fifty one fifty one fifty in favor of the Democrats or fifty one forty nine in favor of the Republicans. Uh, if the Democrats win, then Kamala Harris, you know, is the deciding vote. If they win both seats, and if if uh, if the Republicans win both seats, then they're fifty one forty nine. Manchin is the whip hand. I mean, granted, the Republicans will get what they can get with fifty one votes or block things with fifty one votes, but uh, Manchin is, you know, bids fair to be the most important Democrat in the Senate caucus, and Alexandria Ocasio Cortez is a second term congresswoman with no interest in legislating and does not seem to want to get into the leadership and you know wants to do whatever she does on Instagram and be an activist pushing activist policies uh but she's a media star and Manchin isn't and so it, it's interesting cuz she's firing on him he's way more politically important than she is but in media terms and celebrity terms she is way more important than he is and so that's an interesting fight, and it gets to the most interesting political dynamic of our time, which, again, distorted by Trump's whatever Trump is going to do, is Biden has been given a very unwieldy set of political circumstances. He didn't have coattails. The Democratic Party does not seem to be in great odor with the very voters who chose to make him president. Uh, they They divided power. They divided power at the state level. They divided power at the federal level. Uh, it appears that every, no, what's the number? Every seat that has been contested, you know, it, with these close margins in the House since the election is going the Republican way. Like, you know, that's like this weird wave. It's like the classic, you know, is it going to be 11 seats or something when this is all over, Noah? Do I have the number I'm sorry, wrong? what's it? What's the question? How many seats are currently uncalled no, no. but leaning Republican? Together, all together. The Republican counter wave. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, we just got this mysterious cache of ballots in New York 22, I think, where Claudia Tinney is uh, separated she's up by, by like, 12. Yeah, 12. She's up by yeah, 12. So, like, who knows where that's yeah. going to end up? That's going to be a core challenge. But if they were to win every seat where they are currently leading, including. Uh, Claudia Tenney in 22, I think they end up with 213. Right, which is, I think, 11, like a gain of 11, while Biden won by four points, or a little more than four points. I mean, so Biden is in a tough spot. Like, he has a razor-thin... If they happen to win both Senate seats, by the way, that's where Manchin is really the most important person in the history of American politics. Because if they win, we already had this in in 2000, where it was a 50-50 Senate with Cheney breaking the tie in 2001. And Jim Jeffords, the congressman from Rhode Island, ended up switching parties. He ended up, uh, you know, basically he demanded a $25 billion bribe in the form of a a codicil to some piece of legislation. Not a personal bribe, but a, you know, policy bribe. Uh, to stay Republican, and Bush said, I can't do that, and so he switched parties, and then the Senate was in Democratic hands. Like, that that's that's how central one senator in a 50-50 Senate can be, you know? So uh, Biden's got, this is tough, you know? 
And the Republican caucus is going to basically want to not do anything that he wants to do, despite whatever he says that he can make deals with McConnell and stuff like that. Okay, let me uh, pull back again and talk to you guys about, you've been hearing me talk about Headspace, uh, the meditation app uh, for a couple of weeks. Um, and you know, you, if you've tried meditation before and it didn't work, that's because you really need something that can be in your hand in the right way at your disposal when you need it. And that's Headspace, uh, the app you can download a pocket size guide that helps you sleep, focus, act, be better. And if you have 10 minutes, Headspace can change your life. You don't need to spend a ton of money. To reconnect with yourself, you can start to improve nearly every aspect of your life with your phone and a little headspace. Ten minutes of your day. World of difference. You know the benefits of taking time to work on your physical self, but what about your mental self? So for a mood-boosting workout, check out Headspace. Just 30 days of Headspace lowers stress by 32% and just four sessions can reduce burnout by 14%. Go to headspace.com slash commentary for a free month free, this is the best offer out there, headspace.com slash commentary. Um, so getting back to some of the stuff that we're talking about here, uh, there are two bizarre pieces. There's one bizarre piece and one interesting piece. A piece in on 538 by Nathaniel Rakich, um, one of their election analysts, who is continuing to bang the gong that says that, you know what, there really wasn't that much ticket splitting in this election. And then a piece by Thomas Edsel, New York Times, who says, you know what, there was a whole lot of ticket splitting in this election. Uh, and Edsel is basically going, uh, jumping below the congressional numbers that we were talking about into these uh, state level uh, failures on, on the part of the Democrats in Texas, in Minnesota, and Florida, uh, where they really thought they were going to get a leg up and maybe get a leg up on redistricting by winning uh, state um legislative houses. Um, and I, I, I'm just, I'm at a loss to understand why liberal analysts are so committed to the narrative that there wasn't a lot of ticket splitting when granted there used to be a generation ago, you know, there, Mark Melman has an interesting piece about this in the Hill, you know, like between 1948 and like 1988 or something like that, six out of 15 elections or sorry, eight out of 15 elections, something like that, were won by 10 or more points, presidential elections. Like, the, the, this was a period of landslide. You know, Johnson won by 20 points, Nixon won by 20 points, Reagan won by 10 points, and then by 18 points, Bush won by, I can't remember how, I mean, like, these were these were bizarrely large margins over and over again. Uh, and uh, And then we hit 1992, and it all ended except for Clinton in 96, right, uh, who won by nine, but he didn't win by 10, right? Bush v. Gore was tied. Bush won by uh, 2.8 over Kerry. Obama then won by seven, but that's not 10. Obama then won by four. Uh, you know, Trump uh, won by negative two. Biden wins by four. I mean, uh, and so... There was this period when there was a huge amount of ticket splitting because Republicans often won these landslide elections and Democrats would retain very comfortable majorities in the House and the Senate. But, Noah, why don't, wh- what is it they want? Why, why can't they acknowledge that the voters did something incredibly interesting here 
And doesn't this, well, Abe, we're going to get to your point in a minute. So, uh, Noah, what, what, what's going on here? You don't know. I don't know. You don't know. Well, I can, can I take a guess? Yeah, go ahead. I think there are two things. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, first off, I think um, ticket splitting um, further demonstrates that um, polling, as we understand it, is um, too, um, even at, at, at its best, is too crude and um, sort of broad to capture the actual complicated behavior of Americans when it comes to elections. Um, it, it, it is, it's, it's sort of, um, it's, it, it's too fine. Uh, ticket splitting creates too, too murky a picture. And um, that is uh, a problem uh, for the, for, for polling and the future of polling and for theories of the electorate. Um, that's one. And um, there is, the other is um, that there is an unmistakable um a, a liberal lean to um, uh, uh, so so many of the people who do this kind of thing, and to acknowledge the um, down ballot failure of Democrats is very dispiriting. Well, they've been saying, I mean, the simplest explanation is they've been saying America is is uh, you know statically polarized now for a decade and to admit that it's not would be to retroactively invalidate all that analysis. But on the other hand, it is statically polarized. That's what's interesting here is that, is that um, all of this is taking place with an incredibly narrow frame of votes that it, it turns out it doesn't take very many votes to shift these, to have these massive shifts, right? I mean, uh, Trump won three states by 88,000 votes and won the won the presidency and Biden won three states by 45,000 votes and won the presidency if you take I think Arizona uh was Arizona Georgia and and Wisconsin I, I can't remember there are the three states where if you add them up there are even fewer votes than than Trump needed and yet you also then have these midterms where you have these big swings with smaller electorates though not necessarily that small in 2018 um, what you have here is a period of extreme uh, parity with the parties, whereas, like you know, in previous generations, the Democratic Party was twice the size of the Republican Party, but people stayed nominally in the Democrat in the Democratic Party, and often, particularly from 1968 onward, voted Republican in overwhelming numbers, even though they were nominally Democrats. Right in '72, in '80, in '84, and in '88. Um, and it, now, basically, the parties are pretty much the same size with this large rump of independents. But, you know, uh, Biden got 82 million votes. Trump got 74 million votes. So uh, getting 74 million votes is a mark of um, polarized, static. You know, I mean, he, they they grew, but they both grew not quite at the same pace. Biden grew a little bit somewhat faster. But. Nonetheless, does that mean that we're static? I mean, I, I think it does mean we're static. It just means that not much happens to change the balance here. But that but, doesn't mean that they're not splitting tickets. That's what I'm saying. Right. Like, I mean, that, so I love ticket splitting in the same way I love it. Anytime human nature confounds the engineering mindset, like it's just, I love it. But it is, I'm team Edsel on this. Like when, if you dig down into the elections where they are the most local and the most, and have the most daily impact on Americans' lives, 
the fact that they went Republican uh, more than Democrat at a time when there was a very polarizing Republican at the top of the ticket should be something that we that that shows uh, we should have more respect for the electorate in choosing to do that. And I think the fact that the kind of uh, the the polling types are in denial about that suggests that I, I, I think Abe's right, like they really don't want to acknowledge how broadly the trends that they have taken for granted might have been wrong all along, right? Their underlying base theories might need to be completely reworked. They should have been after 2016, to be honest, but they didn't do it then. Um, And they might be resisting it now. Look, I'm going to say this again. I've been saying this since the election. We don't know what the effect, what the political effects of lockdown were, because every piece of data we have come from these polls that were incredibly wrong. And and we know because pollsters were so thrilled that people were answering the phone in incredibly high numbers because they were all home and they were suddenly getting response rates that they haven't seen in a decade. But we now know that those were overwhelmingly democratic or liberal leaning or something like that. So how do we know whether people supported the lockdowns the way that they think they did? I mean, we, everybody is operating on the basis of flawed... Uh, social science research in determining what it is that people want or need or thought was what was necessary. Something interesting happened here in New York yesterday, last night. There's a a pub in Staten Island. Uh, New York has now taken to, uh, and uh, Cuomo uh, in his authoritarian effort to control everything but look like he's not controlling everything as much, has created zones with different colors over the state. So if you're in a zone that's yellow, then you get this kind of this kind of authoritarian thumb of the government. And if you're in a red zone, it's this. And, if you're in a, and then if you're in a fuchsia zone, I mean, I don't even know what the hell the colors are. But so Staten Island's in a yellow zone, which means that the positivity rate in testing is 4%. So there was a bar. The bar stayed open after 10 o'clock. So the marshals came to shut it down, and they they basically rioted. They said they weren't going to shut down. They ended up, they arrested the, the owner. Uh, this is uh, Tuesday night. And then last night, there was basically a demonstration in front of this bar uh, where the owner was saying they can't do this to us, and why is it okay that down at the Home Depot down the block there are 500 people inside the Home Depot, but I can't have 50 people inside my bar? What is the story here? This doesn't make any sense. You let this open and that not open. I'm a businessman. I need to stay open. And you know, this is Staten Island. Staten Island just went with a you know there was a landslide congressional election in Staten Island. Uh, Nicole Miliotakis won by 12 points over Max Rose, who was a conservative Democrat. And what happened? How how has the press been covering this in New York? The Proud Boys were there. There were some Proud Boys in the crowd. I saw the watch the video. There were like 300 people in the street in front of this, in front of Max Bar and Grill. This is a real thing. People are not accepting this, you know, heavy hand. And uh, Democrats are going to have trouble hearing this. It's only the electoral results that are telling them that how bad defund the police was. Because the polling wasn't telling them how bad defund the police was. It sort of suggested that it wasn't harmful. 
they were also not listening to their constituents as they should have. There was an excellent piece in the New York Times actually a few months ago about uh, the boroughs where the uh, local elected officials were coming to city council and saying, this isn't work. Like our, our folks are not saying to abolish the police. So all of the, the sort of elite narrative from the left that this is what is best for everyone is not, doesn't, my constituents aren't saying that. And there's a sense in which I think, the media setting a narrative about oh if the proud if, if if a single proud boy shows up at a demonstration you actually don't have to take the concerns expressed at that demonstration seriously in the same way that if a single you know peaceful protester appears while burn, burning buildings right. and looting is happening it's mostly peaceful i mean that it, it it's bad because you you trust what you see in front of your own eyes and these people are all democrats right this is not a single I don't know. But it's not true that they didn't know defund the police was in, was a problem for yeah, them. They did know. Yeah. Otherwise, <clears throat> you wouldn't have had people like AOC insisting that it really didn't mean what it meant. And news outlets ranging from CNN to PBS to The Atlantic to Fortune magazine adding needed context to suggest that the slogan wasn't really as maximalist. And Kamala Harris on The View as soliciting Meghan McCain's definition of what defund the police meant before she could deconstruct it. They knew it was bad. They knew it was. They didn't need polls to know it was bad. No, but they didn't Their know how bad. Told them it was they bad. did not know how bad. They really didn't know how bad. We, I mean, I remember we were all rattled because it wasn't polling as badly as you know, as as the evidence of your own eyes and your everything else as you're saying. So there's this stuff going on. You go, "Ooh, this is bad." Like, what are they doing? And then it's like, well, I don't know. Like, look at these numbers. It sort of suggests that people are kind of with this and, you know, support Black Lives Matter and da-da-da-da-da and all of that, you know. And then it's like, I really? Okay, well, I mean, you know, what do I know? I don't really, I only know what I feel. And, you know, then there's data. Look at all this data. What I feel doesn't matter. I need to, like, respect the social science, except the social science is garbage. I mean that's that's the real problem, and we have we have terrible we are in sort of terrible terrible shape when it comes to this. But at least Republicans and conservatives uh, know to distrust liberal narratives, and liberals don't know to distrust liberal narratives. By the way, I would also say conservatives can distrust conservative narratives, which is to say that I don't know a single. I I mean I don't know. I know of a few crazy people who actually believe some of this Trump the election was stolen stuff, but almost everybody I know doesn't because they can all they you know because they're also suspicious of lie. They're suspicious of authority figures in their lines, generally generally speaking. So that's where I would go with that. Okay, so we will table this discussion until tomorrow for Abe Christine. No, I'm John Podhortz. Keep the candle burning.